when we talk specifically about DEI, it's again, not to oversimplify, but it's, it's about access or limited mm -hmm. access. It's about rights or limited or not recognized rights. You know, this is a very rights-based approach that we take with how we view things at the Forest Dialogue. And it's about inclusion or, or, or lack of inclusion. Welcome to an outstanding and fun season four of the Hardwood Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Richard Easley, and I think you're going to enjoy this season and the episodes that we have forthcoming. Thank you. Gary, it's good to see you again, my friend. Welcome to the Hardwood Podcast. Thanks, Thomas. I'm really honored to be here. I'm really, really happy that you all asked me to do this. This is this is fun, and it's great to see you and and uh, have a chat. Exactly. For everyone who's listening, you know, uh, this is uh, I like to say friend. I don't, we really don't talk as much as we probably need to as much as I'd like to talk to him. But it's my friend Gary Dunning. Um, I like to say friend first because he said he's really a, a forestry professional also. But I like to say friend because so you can understand my relationship with him. Uh, you know, uh, initially, he manages the forestry dialogue there, the Yale School of the Environment, uh, which is an outstanding institution and actually the first as far as the U.S. goes, you know, institution that teaches and, you know, uh, um, establishes uh, actual professional foresters. So I'm really honored to have Gary here with me. He and I worked together, talked together, taught classes together, and uh, did workshops together. So uh, it's a, for, for me, it's a joy. That's why I wanted to start with a friend first. But, you know, but hey, don't forget, he is the man. He is a professional. He knows the field, the discipline. And uh, we're going to just jump into this, my friend. So so first, you know, because you're, you're the highlight for this episode. So first, or, 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 or you asked me one of them, because I know we have a couple of conversations that we'll have with a couple of others. Would you mind telling us about your personal background working in forestry or we, we also are saying social forestry, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. So it's kind of kind of a long journey, but I will keep it short and, uh, and highlight. Yeah, it's also, <laughs> you know, it's, it's a little circuitous, but I'll, I'll stay on the, on the, on the main points. So I grew up in the Midwest. I grew up um, outside Chicago, and I grew up in the at the rustiest time of the Rust Belt. It was in the 70s. Mm -hmm. So I bring that up because no real natural environment to speak of, no real forest where I was. Of course, I experienced them as a kid going out with my dad and and mm -hmm. stuff, maybe hunting or fishing. But but for the, mm -hmm. the most part, it was a it was a concrete jungle. At some point. Um, I decided to leave college before graduating and move out to California. Okay. And for me, that was such an important move because it kind of opened up a whole new natural world. And I was living in San Francisco and we were going up to the forest up north often. So I fell in love with forests and the whole notion of the natural world at that time. And I became very involved. And actually, this was around the mid to late 80s. Uh, there was a lot of activism around the red, saving the redwood forest, saving the redwood forest. Mm -hmm. So at that time, I became very involved in that movement. Actually decided to finish my degree up at Humboldt, Humboldt State, which is how I actually, I love forests so much. And I had the opportunity to do forestry and geography up at Humboldt. So uh, I wanted to be in that place, right? I wanted to live. I wanted to exist. I wanted to experience that place in a deep way. So living up, up in Northern California, and I will say that I, I developed an extremely forest-centric ethic. Mm -hmm. And by that, I mean, man, if people just left, 
then the forest would be good, right? Let's strive for a situation where we can keep people out. That was kind of what I was thinking in that time. Yes. Um, I was thinking less about management, about forest management at that time. And I was thinking a lot more about conservation or preservation. Again, mm -hmm. I was kind of involved in those, the forest wars of the Pacific Northwest, not as a leader, but as kind of a follower and observer. I understand. But also at that same time, my wife, Colleen, was um, starting to work on international forestry issues in another way. Mm -hmm. And so we both decided, once we graduated, we both decided that we wanted to do international development. We wanted to go into the international development field and do something with forests. Okay. So we went into the Peace Corps and we happened to be placed in Kenya. I thought I was going to be doing forestry along with Colleen, but mm -hmm. ended up being placed as agroforestry extensionist. So we lived uh, in Kenya for about two and a half years. And I have to say that for me, again, oversimplifying, but it was just a, a whole shift in my thinking, as you might imagine, you know, growing <laughs> up and being fairly sheltered in the U.S. But most importantly, and I think what connects me to what I'm doing today, most importantly, is the fact that I understood viscerally how important it is to make decisions about natural resources, that those decisions be inclusive, and that the... <laughs> the magnitude of those decisions can mean survival for people. Mm -hmm. So this luxury of, hey, let's just conserve and boot people out of the forest because we need to do that. While there are circumstances and places that you can have, that you can maintain that thinking, I think for That's me, it was more important to figure out how to bring people into this process rather than mm -hmm. exclude them. So I thought a lot about, again, it was the context of agroforestry where you're actually, as you know, Thomas putting forests on agricultural land on small, small farmers, small farmer holdings. That was really important. Um, but it also made me think more about the social forestry side. How can I engage people in this process? How can we really think about empowering people and, and mm -hmm. we worked on dismantling marginalization. That's what was in my mind. You know, there are so many marginalized people from being able to affect or make change or impact decisions that are made about natural resources. What can we do to break down those barriers? So from the Peace Corps, uh, I applied to Yale to do my master's. Um, and my focus was social forest. And my interest was well, it, it became working on dialogue and platforms, creating platforms to uh, create space for a broad range of folks to engage. Fast forward a little bit. So I was able to do that while I was a student. I learned a lot while I was here. I worked on some really interesting projects. Mm -hmm. uh, I was given opportunities to stay at Yale and work on different things. Mm -hmm. But in 2000, um, a group of folks that I had met through another project approached me about developing a global platform for exactly what I was trying to figure out how to do, and that was stakeholder engagement on forest issues. So that was the birth of the forest dialogue, and that's when I be became involved, the year 2000. Wow. For me, I think that it's important that I do something with you just really quick, if you don't mind, and this as it relates to diversity, equity, and inclusion. One of the things that I do when, I'm, when I talk to people, I also like to share a little bit of mine, not because it's a mm -hmm. tip for tat, no, it's just that I want people to know that what I'm asking of you is the same thing I'd be comfortable sharing of myself. 
you see, you know, like just in case there's a question, I just I, I can do this really quick though. So me like you, I think I grew up in an urban environment as well. I'm from Birmingham, Alabama. Okay, so I, well, I tend to grew up outside of Birmingham. All right, and I'm also an Eagle Scout. So I was exposed to what we would say the outdoors, if you will, even though there's no separation, but I was exposed to it. But you know, as a kid having fun, you know, learning how to make a campfire, wilderness survival, all of that stuff. I didn't even know about forestry until I got to college. I learned, and that was in the mid 90s, okay? So I'm in college during that time, and I'm learning what we would call, we use different terms now, you know, but we say a plantation forestry back then. Mm -hmm. We say a traditional forestry back then, you know, and then I end up leaving there, going to work for the Forest Service, doing timber sale prep for a couple of years. I didn't even start really, please, like I said, I'm just, excuse my ignorance, and this isn't me disrespecting my undergrad institutions because they prepared me, but I really didn't even start having conversations around sustainability until I got, till I left the Forest Service. To be honest with you, finished my master's, which was at Iowa State. I went to Alabama a and for my undergrad as well as, as well as University of Georgia, go Bulldogs twice, worked at Yale, so Bulldogs three times. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. You know, but I didn't learn, I didn't start, we didn't, I didn't start talking about sustainability, my friend, until after I seriously probably practiced forestry more than a decade. Yeah. So I wasn't even having those conversations. I'll be honest with you, it was about management, bottom line. You know, uh, we got to be able to help the landowners, you know, grow their trees back because we're going to, you know, because we're going to keep making money. And it wasn't until later in life after I graduated with my master's and I started working in communities in Alabama, to be honest, I went back to Alabama. And then that's when I started learning about agroforestry. And that's when I started learning about brownfield remediation and different things like that. And I'm like, hey, man, wait a minute, we can use trees to fix this? You see, like, you know, see, we didn't talk about that. And I'm a geneticist now, so that's what got me interested in genetics, is that we can, you know, genetically modify trees and do things. But, you know, that, that's another conversation. But the point that I want to just, just bring, bring my piece to a close is my career over time kind of shifted how I saw forestry. You know, and I still love my discipline, but I was like, whoa, if I would have probably learned forestry like at an institution like a Yale, I probably would have been talking what you're saying now, is what I'm saying. Like, I would have I would have gotten it sooner. I kind of feel like I just kind of ran into it. You know, I wasn't trained into it. I just like ran into it. And then, and then I felt like I had to somewhat unlearn some of what I learned, even though I still know how to do it. And so I, I wanted to t take you through that one to say thank you for sharing your experience. I just wanted to give you mine. But the reason why I also wanted to do that, my friend, is because that leads really to my second question. And that's why I, I, want, I didn't want to lead, like, you know, mislead or lead you. I just wanted to kind of set this up because I want now I hope that what I'm about to ask you makes a little bit more sense. Based on your experience, and I can answer this too if you want, you know, for, for me, excuse me, not for that quote for me. What are the types of conflicts in the discipline or the field of forestry? And I want to say, because you and I have done work together in diversity, so we, we've done this, when considering diversity to equity inclusion. And just to add a little bit more context, when, when, when I say that, I'm talking about, let's just say fairness. I'm, let me just put that out there. Fairness between how we treat the land. Fairness between how we respect the land but don't get me wrong because it's not just the land it's people fairness between how we work with people on the land give people access to it you know especially if you're a, a, a landowner and, I, and i'll tell you where this question came from and then i'll stop when i worked for the forest service timber sale prep we would have to go out and we would create management plans to harvest trees we would make plans you know we would go out and paint lead, you know paint leaf trees you know paint the trees to take when we were going on other wealthy people's land 
like Ted Turner. I was like, wait a minute, I work for the Forest Service. Why were you on Ted Turner's land? Mm. You know, and then that's when I started going, wait a minute. Okay, so the Forest Service has their land, but then we can also work with landowners to also oh harvest trees as well. You know, I'm like, oh, okay. So then that's when I started learning about tax breaks and start learning about those kind of things and people who have access to that. And then that's when I started going, well, everybody can't do that. Yeah. You know, everybody, you know, can't can make those decisions. That's just an example of why I wanted to ask that question, because that's one of those things that started opening my eyes when I was like, oh, this isn't just us working on government land. We get access to other things, too. You know, so that's why I wanted to ask that. Well, that's a I mean, that's a really good way to to put that and ask that question. Um, you know, just to be clear, most of my work, particularly since 2000, has been outside the U.S. So we don't. Yes, sir. The forest okay. dialogue doesn't really work in the U.S. a lot. Um, gotcha. I was fortunate right. to work a lot on U.S. forest issues prior to the forest dialogue, but I just want to be clear to your listeners that most of my experience um, that I'll be speaking about and, and what's driving the forest dialogue now is about global, kind of the globe, what we deem as global challenges. And yes. in some cases, they're very different than the U.S. experience, which has, mm -hmm. its, as you know, and as you stated, its own unique set of challenges. But for right. us, Actually, it's interesting. The Forest Dialogue from day one said, we're going to embrace, embrace meaning we are going to lean in and dive deeply into the conflict, into issues of conflict. So as a dialogue platform, our goal is to bring stakeholders together, create a, a, a productive uh, environment for engagement. Trust building is incredibly important as a part of our process. We're bringing folks together that, you know, may have been in open conflict for a long time about some of these really uh, big issues. Some of these conflicts are global, some are na national, some are local, but we're, we're using this in stakeholder engagement and built this stakeholder engagement around addressing conflict. And now yes. when we, when we talk specifically about DEI, it's again, not to oversimplify, but it's, it's about access or limited mm -hmm. access. It's about rights or limited or not recognized rights. You know, this is a very rights-based approach that we take with how we view things at the Forest Dialogue. And it's about mm -hmm. inclusion or, or, or lack of inclusion. Most, not all, I mean, old school conflict that we first started out where, ooh, an environmental group was fighting a company for environmental issues. You know, they wanted, you know, you were talking about sustainable forestry. When I first started in this, sustainable forestry didn't exist as a concept. In fact, in, at Humboldt, I had a great professor um, that, that taught me this concept of new forestry, which kind of led to the concepts of more holistic forestry. Again, something I discovered later, Yale has been teaching holistic forestry for a long time, or holistic mm -hmm. forestry, or multifaceted mm -hmm. approach to forest management and forest mm -hmm. conservation. So, but those things were new to me. But even sustainable forestry really didn't become a term until mid, you know, early 90s, mid 90s, when after the Rio, the Rio conference. Yeah. Um, mm -hmm. But for us, again, it's all about rights and access and inclusion. And when you exclude people or refuse people's rights, whether they be traditional or whether they actually be recognized, but you're still excluding them from access and rights, that's when you get conflict. And so even though at the very beginning we were thinking about environmental conflict, environmental challenges, probably uh, very early on in the process of establishing TFD, the Forest Dialogue, 
we understood this is, we're talking about social, economic, we're talking about rights-based, we're talking about humans engaging about forest issues. And so that's, you know, for us, deeping, diving deeply into that was something that we did from almost the beginning. And also I'll note that we rapidly evolved as a platform. Our very first, our founding members, as it were, that we don't really have members, but our founding people, I'll call them, <laughs> um, were mostly from the big NGOs, big environmental groups, and the big right. companies. In fact, okay. the roots of our establishment was at a, a World Bank meeting where the bank brought the CEOs of the big NGOs, global NGOs, and the big global companies saying, we need you guys to stop fighting. Uh, World Bank wants to wants to be able to invest more in sustainable forestry. Can you come together? And one of the things they said, we need we need a neutral platform where we can come together. Um, and anyway, that's how it came to Yale. And, and I had some background in stakeholder management. And so they asked me to, to run this thing back in 2000. Mm -hmm. But quickly we realized Later, we termed them the right, rights holders, but we realized that yeah. it's not just about the big companies uh, arguing with the environmental group. It's the right holders that need to be in there. And so our first group didn't reflect that. Uh, within a year or two, we started adding different, different right holders to our steering committee to be able to better reflect that. And now, mm -hmm. you know, and, and I'll be, to be honest, brutally honest, mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. first group were primarily almost exclusively but not completely but almost exclusively white males from north america and europe and now depending on the different diversity criteria you want to use our steering committee is in incredibly diverse representing mm -hmm. all views but all folks all geographies the vast range about as a wider range of stakeholders as you possibly could imagine that's why i look forward mm -hmm. to hearing from our current co-leader of the group, uh, Malagre Nivunga. She's from Mozambique, but has a very global remit to her approach to the world. She's, she's a perfect uh, representative of what our steering committee is trying to reflect and learn from and, and you know, have be a part of this process. It has been for some time. Wow, okay. For, I, want, for, I, want, I want to say thank you for that. I've been sitting up here just taking down notes, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, good notes, not that, you know, like most of them, like, wow. Because there was another part of my question that you've already answered, and it was about like, how can we address DEI and forest practices? And I mean, you, I'm, I'm not saying, please, you know, like you wouldn't have to address that either if you don't want, but I'm saying I'd like to pull from what you share just mm -hmm. to add some answers to that for myself so that you don't have to, so, so, so you can rest your vocal cords if you want. One, you say you all acknowledge that there was conflict going on so we needed to create a body or something to address the conflict. So you didn't run from it. That was the first thing. And then you recognize that you may either be in it or the other people who are in it that are not here. So we need to bring them in. What I love, you say access, rights, inclusion. So now those are the three big key pieces to the TFD, Forest Dialogue. You said that you learned a more holistic approach, just like I said at a and I didn't learn that. You saying originally you did, but when you got to Yale, that's when you started learning. Me, as I said, later in life after I graduated, I started hearing about more sustainable practices and more and more holistic practices. And, um, and then, I mean, you brought so many pieces in, the social piece, the economic piece, the human piece, the forestry piece. 
then you acknowledge that. But when we first came together, you know, it's big companies, NGOs, that may not necessarily represent all of the issues that we're talking about. And you also, you know, pointed out you from a gender perspective and race that when we first started too, it was mostly white, white males from North America and also Europe. And I want you to recognize everyone when he did, he acknowledged, he said North America, catch that. That's right. Understand that there's a bunch of, there's a bunch of land over here. And then you said, but now we represent multiple, and then mentioning Malagade, who is going to give us an account as well. And so to me, what that means is that I just want to answer it. I say, there was intentionality. You didn't run from what you thought was the issue, not just the practices, but what we kind of represent too, you know, and who we're speaking for. And when you said the right holders, I hadn't heard that term in a, in a minute. I remember you used to say that to me when, when, when I was there. I just want to say, is there any other way that that that's like seven different ways right there <laughs> that you've addressed the EIs to anything that maybe I misrepresented? If I did, I apologize. Or, you know, I'm sure there's something I left out because, you know, I have been a part of TFD. No, I think your note taking skills are pretty impressive there, Thomas. Um, probably better than mine. And your synthesis, your ability to synthesize is also better than mine. Um, I, I think. The, the thing to, to point out, though, is is acknowledgement is one thing, but actual action and putting practices in place. That's a, mm -hmm. that's a as you know, that's a whole different thing. And we're we're judged and we're we're uh, our success in this sector is assessed by a lot of different people. And I think for the most part, we, we do pretty well. But you have challenges like I mean, our inclusion is meant to be no barriers right if somebody wants to be involved you know uh, there's a process but if somebody wants to be involved they should be able to get involved in our work so there's there's different ways that we need to be able to do that and we don't always we're not always kind of where i would be hope we would be and for one reason or one one really important barrier to access is resources right if you don't have money to be able to to fund somebody to participate in your work then mm -hmm. that's a barrier. And it's unfortunately mm -hmm. not one that we can control. We can say, and we do say, we are very clear that finances will not be a barrier for somebody to participate in our work. But again, that we have to raise those funds and there's, <laughs> that's kind of hard to do. But yeah. we're fairly, you know, one way we do that is we tell everybody else, particularly those with means, pay for yourself, make contributions to the forest dialogue so that we can then have funds to, to be able to bring in others. So there's, there, there's the financial barrier of creating the ability for po folks to participate. But another important one relates to societal, cultural, and language barriers, right? So we're talking about folks that probably live in rural areas, more often than not, have never engaged in a, and to be honest, this is a global platform, but its roots are probably Western, right? This kind of, and again, Dialogue. I don't. I haven't really. I'm not a. I'm not a scholar on dialogue as a science or as a tool, but I'm fairly certain this style that we use, at least its roots, are more westernized and used in North America and Europe. So we're we're approaching folks that have no background in this. They may be intimidated by these global or international type processes or exchanges. So we have to think about how do we build capacity? How do we provide these folks with the tools and the understanding and the knowledge to help them be successful by engaging in this process? It's one thing to say, well, we have, we have money to bring in five folks that, you know, representing diverse interests that couldn't, haven't otherwise been able to participate. 
But, and I've been in these meetings in other settings where, great, those folks are there, they're sitting in a corner, they're not talking. Um, one thing that's not in their language, you know, maybe somebody is translating, maybe not, but you know, somebody's ticking boxes. So we had to think through, you know, how can we generally, genuinely create an environment where not only are those folks present, but they feel engaged and they feel like they've had a material, they can have a material impact in the discussions. So that's part of the, that's a big yeah. part of the challenge is, is helping people feel ready. And it's also one thing, somebody has heard about a dialogue, they want to be a part of it. So they, they let us know or they let somebody else know and we, and we bring them in. Wow. How about all the people that don't know about us and all the people we don't know about? How do you, that was one of the biggest challenges that, that I kept saying to people, how do you know the people you don't know? You know, how are you going to reach the people that you don't know? Because those are the people that we want to reach at the end of the day. So right. setting up networks and making sure, you know, and that's that part of that process is making sure that we have folks that represent those deeper networks into those you know, community forestry, indigenous peoples, other folks that have been marginalized in the past, we need to make sure they're represented in our steering committee because then that's part of our access. So that's probably the most important early thing we did is, is to diversify the steering committee to make sure those okay. individuals are re represented. But again, there's barriers to inclusion and it's tough. Um, yes. We're not a UN body, right? We're, we are not, we don't have a UN charter. Um, the UN can do a lot of things that we can't do, obviously. We're an independent <laughs> platform. We are dependent upon gifts or grants like most independent organizations. But we do what we can do. And I think, you know, we've produced, we have some, you know, some of our most thoughtful critics are current steering committee members, you know, folks that are like, you got to do better. I'll help you do better, but you got to do better, you know, and, and um, we just had a steering committee meeting yesterday where, you know, um, as we always do, we ask people to reflect on, on TFD and their ability to participate and their interest and whatnot. And, you know, we, we take that feedback on board and we're constantly evolving and, and trying to, trying to improve those processes. Yeah. It's a challenge though. Wow. See, okay. In my, I want to say thanks again. You technically went into the third question which you know which it is everyone listening how does tfd incorporate the first perspectives in the multi-stakeholder dialogue process and you, you hey, i don't know got a question ahead of time but wow you answered that already just in everything that you said i mean but the fact that you acknowledge that the way that we may do it you know can be considered or is western so that right there can kind of you know, um, exclude people. So then you bring people from the place that you're trying to reach, bringing translators. You know, we, I, I love how you said you can see, you know, you can see someone sitting over there and it's like if they're not engaged, oh, then we go, then we go over there and figure out how to bring them into it. And then there is, we already said the word intention. There's something I want to say about a, another term that I think people, it, it's, it's not to oversimplify it, but I'm, I'm, until I come up with another, it's kind of like having skin in the game. Mm -hmm. And also, I want to say having thick skin. Both mm -hmm. having skin in the game is the people who are given resources coming and playing, playing, playing in the game. Like you know, not not not, not trying to trivialize it. I'm just saying that they're involved. And then the people who actually have a thick skin, who are listening to the to the critics and the critiques, you know, constantly. And I think it requires that is that number. And I know that that's not always easy. Uh, matter of fact, I don't think it's really ever easy unless you want giving a critique but that means that you're taking it and you're receiving it applying it trying to see how we can address it to me those are three or i think five things i've said right there but because you said 
plenty, plenty. But, you know, those are at least some ways that you're already incorporating diverse perspectives in this process. Uh, and I want to applaud you for that. But then just ask, are there any other ways that you can see that you all are doing that? And oh, oh, almost like the last piece. You said acknowledgement is one thing, but action is the other. And you're telling me about the actions that you're taking. So that's why I just want to go about any other, you know, actions or any other, anything else. Well, like I said, most importantly is for us to listen um, and to, we, we, you know, another thing that we do that's really important is all of our dialogue. So maybe just to describe what we do a little bit more so people can understand. We, um, we're not a body that says, hey, let's do a dialogue and we're going to bring 60 people together at World Bank headquarters in D.C. And there we go. And we'll pay for a couple people to fly in. We've had meetings like that, but that's not really what we do. What we do is what we would term field dialogues, right? We, okay. we, we, we take an issue and any issue could come up, but I'm gonna bring up a really important one in this context. Okay. Investing in locally controlled forestry was an issue where it was post-conflict, right? It was one of those where we said, you know, we've been dealing with a lot of conflict issues. Let's get ahead of conflict. Let's say we know that where local, can, where local peoples, local entities have control of their forests, you get mm -hmm. better results, measurably better results on a variety of, of criteria. So we decided to do a dialogue series and we're funded, fully funded, thankfully, to do a dialogue series on investing in locally controlled forests. Our goal was to bring local control leaders and others that were either gained access or about to gain access and rights over local forests. Mm -hmm. um, most of these folks represented what we termed as the, the three rights holders groups, the three major rights holders groups, indigenous peoples, forest-based communities, and smallholders. Uh, so landowners, um, but typically family forest owners, uh, you know, that's the European and North American term. Uh, but mm -hmm. smallholders in the global south. Okay. Our ideas was to bring these three rights holders together with investors and say, mm -hmm. you know, we knew for these actions, for these positive results to happen, you need people to bring money to the table, right? If we're mm -hmm. thinking big picture, not just giving folks their rights, but setting them up to be able to do things that they want to do in those forests, to take actions and to be able to, to afford to take those actions. So we had a great series of dialogues where we, the rights holders were talking with the investors and we had others as a part of that process as well. It was amazing. The kind of things that the communities understood, wanted to do, were willing to do, and what the investors wanted, you know? Like investors wanted detailed business plans. Investors wanted things like, you know, assurances risk abatement and things like they wanted to address risk. All these things that, that communities like, uh, you know, they don't have a lot of experience in that. So part of, we developed this guide to investing in locally controlled forestry. It came out of the dialogue. But the most important thing is we didn't do those dialogues in Geneva or in London, we actually did one in London. But the idea was we did them in 11 different countries in those rural areas. We did one in Nepal. We did them in, in Central um, and South America. We did them in Africa, in different countries in Africa. We were out there in the rural areas. We were there where the communities were, and that's the most important thing. We weren't bringing them to us. We were going to them. We were being hosted by them on their 
lands in their forest. We were in Panama and we were hosted by the Kuna. It was the most, one of the most amazing discussions that we've ever had. And I think that's probably one of the most important things is to, to take these processes to where the people are and to get investors to leave their capitals and, you know, in this particular case, to go out into the field and, mm -hmm. and speak directly. And this guide really broke down some of those barriers, broke down the language differences, gave some mm -hmm. guidance for both the investors, how the investors can really benefit from, but also benefit communities directly in this mm -hmm. case. And, and, it, and it started, it really underscored the need for the communities to have capacity building processes in place um, to be able to, to do more business, to have community members do forestry so they can bring that back, have community members do more traditional uh, business degrees in economics and bring that back to the community. Mm -hmm. And here's an important piece here. The investors included the aid organizations. Oh, okay. So enabling investment, something I didn't really think a lot about, even though I was a part of it when I was in the Peace Corps, enabling mm -hmm. investment was the most important upfront investment because it paved the way and created an opportunity for investors uh, to be more um, comfortable or working with communities. At the same time, the empowerment of communities to say no, right? FPIC, free prior informed consent. The no part of free prior informed consent, a lot of people like to say pre-prior pre informed consultation. That is so incredibly different than the right to say no, right? You can consult, yes. them, listen to them, take their feedback on board, but your project still goes forward. FPIC was a vital part of, of the experience. Communities had to be able to say no to projects. And we needed investors that would listen, right? Not just say, hey, all right, sorry, bottom line's not there for me. I'm out. Obviously, I wouldn't call them angel investors because I think that's ridiculous. But, you know, they are investors that really wanted to invest in more than pure return, right, for the most part in this space. But you also yes. want to create, you want to create an opportunity where down the line, even traditional investors are like, yeah, this is a worthwhile investment. And communities are getting what they have deemed they want out of it. So that, you know, that was a way that most important part there is making these processes happen where these folks are, where these forests are, and creating platforms where they feel that they can engage in an equal way. You can't, as you know, there's so much pervasive inequality in every stratus of our lives. And you can never, a process like ours can't say, okay, now everybody's equal because you're in the same room, but you can create a process where folks feel their opinion is equal, feel that their inputs are valued, and at least the outcomes or the, the report outs of, the, of meetings like this reflect that. And at the end of the day, part of the important part of our process is trying to bring partners together to take those actions that they've discussed in the dialogues to actually put uh, projects in place. And there were some great pilots that came out of this, for instance, the Investing in Locally Controlled Forestry Initiative. One of the side initiatives, another dialogue, was to talk specifically about how do you implement FPIC. So we're taking on issues that are very, very specifically focused on engaging folks that have previously been excluded or marginalized, right? So talking about FPIC, 
or we were involved in red red projects exclusively looking at how do you do uh, benefit sharing how do red benefit get from those billion dollar funds that reach the national government how do they actually for instance, build hospitals, because that's what a lot of communities want. How do they, how do those funds get down to that level? How do they lead to conservation of forests, but also allow local communities continued access? A lot of those red projects were like, we're just going to cordon off. This is for carbon now. Thanks, folks. Thanks for protecting this area for 10,000 years. Uh, we got it from here. You know, that kind of thing. Yes. So. I think that's another way is we're listening to the needs of those communities and we're creating initiatives where we're addressing those needs directly. Here, well, I want to say thank you because you've actually answered all of, the, all of our questions, but I want to highlight something in particular from the, this, the, the great explanation that you just gave was, in my opinion, you actually described what empowerment really is. <clears throat> and, 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 you, and you didn't say what I'm about to say is not, you didn't say it was what I'm gonna say it is, what you said that you all did. I think a lot of people go, yeah, we can empower people, but well, you know, what about setting up an environment so they can empower themselves? How about that? Like provide them that so they can do it. You all didn't do the first part, you did the second part. You know, the fact that you, and you made, and you worked to make it work for both sides. Investors like, hey, you know, we want you to feel comfortable, give it, but understand when you give, they actually have a right you know, to say no, or, you know, they have a right to say, this is how we want to get things done. And, uh, and I think that when we talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion, to me, that is one of the crux of understanding those three principles when they're put together, you know, is that you're giving people options, you're giving people access, you're giving people information, and you're leaving the choice still to them. And then you're backing up and letting them do that. And I just want to say everyone who's listening, that I've, um, that's, um, not always a common practice, and I and I just want to applaud you all for doing that because you don't hear that a lot, whether we're talking forestry or whether we're talking diversity, you know, and uh, and I remember that was one of the things that really uh, uh, that really impressed me about the dialogue when I was there, and so I want to thank you, you know, for sharing that, and thank you for giving such an amazing explanation, and really, man, this will bring us to a close, my friend. Is like I said, you've answered everything. Just is there anything extra that you'd like to? you know, uh, leave us with, you know, a bit of information, uh, a thought, something that maybe feel like, oh, country didn't ask me that, but let me just leave this gym real quick. Well, I'll say that, you know, we can only do so much, right? And we're still learning, yeah. we're still growing, we're still, you know, one of the reflections of always learning and growing is mm -hmm. um, in response to what happened with George Floyd, our group, mm -hmm. even though we're not US based, but our group really mm -hmm. understands, again, we can stimulate, facilitate, support, but at the end of the day, we're not the ones that can ensure lasting change, right? And for some of the folks we're, we're trying to include and, and bring into this process, it's a violent world, right? In many respects, mm -hmm. these folks, again, are dealing with, uh, they don't have the luxury of just dialogue sometimes, right? Because sometimes mm -hmm. their lives are at stake in some of these issues in some of these regions, it's really that raw. So we really, we wanted to reflect on that tragedy and think about it in the context of the work that we're doing. So we created a, um, a safeguards policy based on that. And it took us about a year to really think through how can we make sure this is a safe platform? What can we do to make sure that people feel comfortable, but also we're not you know, we're not just inciting 
you know, like because it's some of these wounds, some of these issues are very raw. We we can't just say, oh, let's talk about it. You know, we have mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. we have to we have to think about the folks that can be impacted both positively and negatively from some of these things. So I would encourage mm-hmm. you, and I hope um, you have the the chance to talk to Malagre. Because Malagre yes, had a lot to do with the development of our safeguards policy and really helped us, as did some of the other some of the other folks on our steering committee. Um, okay. So that's, again, that's something, you know, we've been around for 20 years and this, this came out, we, we developed this last year. So we're continuing to learn and grow. We can't do everything. We can do some things better and we'll, we'll try to continue to do that. But we are just, we're, we're a dialogue platform. Lasting change comes from the folks that participate in our platform and are motivated, yes. interested, and able to implement change on the ground. And that's where ultimately we're all going to be measured. So um, I just want, you know, I want to make sure people, we have that eye on that ball, but that's kind of outside of our purview a little bit. Yes. Well, no, well, well I appreciate you, but because you're showing the intentionality still in, in recognizing your scope and your reach, you know, and seeing the limitations, but still working safely and thoughtfully to get around them. So, wow. I, look, well, we know that we're going to have another piece of the conversation. Uh, that we have to have with Milagre Day. So we're looking forward to having uh, her visit. Uh, Gary, you have, uh, I'm going to say, graced and blessed our, our platform. Thank you so much. And uh, uh, to everyone listening, I hope that you all are taking a lot from the Forestry Dialogue. You're listening to Gary Dunning, okay, friend of Parkwood, friend of Thomas Easley, leader of the Forestry Dialogue. And we just want to thank you again for your time, my friend. Thomas, all I can say is I'm honored to be a, a part of your podcast and I am so happy to reconnect with you, true friend, true friend, Thomas. And and anytime, I'd love to continue to chat. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you for uh, giving us the opportunity to share some of the lessons we learned with the Force Dialogue. Okay. Hey, well, thank you. I appreciate you. Thank you for tuning in. And I'm your host, Dr. Thomas Richard Easley. We never want to close out our episodes without thanking our sponsors, the Yale School of the Environment, and also Mind Heart for Diversity, LLC. Thank you again, everyone, for tuning in.